bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, October 9th, 2012. Next week, by the way, I'm headed to New Orleans for the Novogratik New Market Tax Credit Conference. In the meantime, I begin this week's podcast by following up on a topic from last week regarding the gang of six in the Senate, which has reportedly grown to a gang of eight. Then, in the long closing tax credit section, I have a brief update on efforts to extend the 9% tax credit floor. I will then discuss a recent report entitled Housing Credit Policies in 2012 that promote supportive housing. This report examines qualified allocation plans for 54 housing tax credit agencies, and the report highlights notable changes to supportive housing policies this year. I will also review a recent common invitation from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development regarding adopting smoke-free policies in multifamily housing. In this week's historic tax credit section, I'll talk about the National Park Service's new website that focuses on issues related to adding solar panels to historic buildings, districts, and landscapes. In this week's renewable energy discussion, I'll review the findings of a national poll that shows continued strong voter support for solar energy and for government incentives for solar. I'll also examine the sixth annual state energy efficiency scorecard. And finally, in our new market test credit segment, I'll summarize key figures from the latest monthly update to the CDFI Fund's Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report. I also have a quick update about new phone numbers and fax numbers for CDFI Fund staff, as well as an update on a new keynote speaker for our New Market Tax Credit Conference in New Orleans next week. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, to follow up on a topic from last week, reports indicate that the most recent gang of six in the Senate has in fact grown to a gang of eight. Eight senators, four Democrats and four Republicans, will continue to meet this month to try to prevent the federal government from falling off the so-called fiscal cliff. The group's meetings continue to be shrouded in secrecy. Now, the original gang of six was formed last summer during efforts to address the debt ceiling crisis. The original group, comprised of Senators Mark Warner, Dick Durbin, and Kent Conrad on the Democratic side, and Saxby St. Chambliss, Mike Crapo, and Tom Coburn on the Republican side. The reconvene group has been joined by Republican Senator Lamar Alexander and Democratic Senator Michael Bennett. Even if, though, this expanded Gang of Eight is able to reach an agreement, it's unclear how much traction that agreement could gain. As with most issues that are facing federal lawmakers at the moment, the results of the election will factor heavily in the outcome. That said, though, in my conversations with senators that are not part of the Gang of Eight, 
I hear that the work done by the Gang of Eight will be helpful in reaching a final agreement in the Senate, as well as a final agreement with the House that the President would be willing to sign. As always, stay tuned. In low-income housing tax credit news, I want to start with a brief update on efforts to extend the 9% tax credit floor. It's beginning to look like, unfortunately, for procedural reasons, that the 9% floor will not be part of the House extenders bill. Now, I do hope that I'm wrong, but if I am correct, then the Senate extenders bill will be even more important, as well as a possible Senate House conference on extenders. And as I said earlier, stay tuned for more news. Now, turning to supportive housing, the Corporation for Supportive Housing recently released its report, Housing Credit Policies in 2012 that Promote Supportive Housing. This report examines qualified allocation plans, or QAPs, for 54 housing credit agencies, and the report highlights notable changes to supportive housing policies this year. The report found that most state agencies encourage supportive housing policies, and they do so using one or more of the following approaches. Many agencies have threshold requirements that require a specific percentage of units be dedicated to supportive housing or the placement of income requirements on units. Some agencies use credit set-asides, which allocate a portion of housing tax credits to supportive housing developments. Finally, the report found that 50 out of the 54 housing credit agencies provide potential scoring advantages for supportive housing services. An example, Utah offers 10 points for dedicating units to homeless people earning 25% or less of the area median income or AMI. Another example, Alabama offers a scoring advantage of up to 5 points for supportive services like computer training, tutoring, after-school programs, and more. In addition to these different approaches, the report found three interesting trends in the past year's Qualified Allocation Plan policy changes. First, there is a significant increase in the number of agencies using the tax credit set-asides that I mentioned earlier. This created a pool of $53 million for supportive housing developments. Second, QAPs provided additional incentives for developments with public housing authority resources like project-based vouchers, HOPE 6 money, or choice communities funding. Third, more credit allocating agencies promoted integrated housing or developments with a mix of supportive housing and affordable housing units. For example, Delaware awards 20 points for developments that target different income levels. Maximum points will be awarded when 50% of units are dedicated to residents earning 30% or less of the AMI. Overall, the report concluded that even with limited funding, agencies still find innovative ways of offering supportive housing incentives. I encourage you to check out the report at www.csh.org. Turning to tobacco and housing, that's right, tobacco and housing, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development has invited information on adopting smoke-free policies. In a Federal Register notice published last week, HUD asked the public and community stakeholders to provide information 
about the implementation of smoke-free policies in public and multifamily housing. HUD says it would like to hear from resident councils, advocacy groups, and housing providers. The department also said it would particularly like to hear from those directly affected by or involved with the implementation of smoke-free policies in public and multifamily developments. Now, HUD is seeking information on best practices and practical strategies for housing providers who have implemented smoke-free policies. Also, they're looking for ideas for overcoming potential obstacles to implementing these policies. And they're seeking advice for supporting housing providers and residents that are transitioning to smoke-free housing. Now, last week's notice also requests input from housing providers that have decided not to implement a smoke-free policy and others who may have been affected by that decision. HUD says it will use this information to develop additional guidance for owners and managers who wish to implement smoke-free policies. HUD will accept comments from interested parties until November 5, 2012. A copy of the Federal Register Notice requesting the information on smoke-free policies can be found online at the HUD Resource Center. Simply go to www.hudresourcecenter.com. In historic tax credit news, I have a topic that could just as easily have been in our renewable energy tax credit section, namely the National Park Service's Technical Preservation Services Unit has a new website that showcases solar panels that have been added to historic buildings, districts, and landscapes. As listeners know, adding solar panels to historic properties can have a significant impact on the character and visual qualities that convey a property's cultural significance. The Park Service says that solar panel installations should not become prominent new elements that detract from the character-defining features of a building or landscape. And to assist property owners, historic preservation commissions, and policymakers, the Park Service has developed guidance for applying the standards for rehabilitation to the installation of solar panels on historic properties. The agency also recently launched a new website called Solar Panels on Historic Properties. The site displays historic properties that have installed solar panels while still meeting the Secretary of the Interior standards for rehabilitation. The website provides examples of projects that successfully installed solar panels on new additions, flat roofs, gabled roofs, and porch roofs. It also includes photos of pole-mounted arrays and arrays located outside the historic area. The Technical Preservation Services Division says it plans to put additional projects on the site in the future. You can access the site via the National Park Service's website, www.mps.gov. Click on New Technology and Historic Properties in the Sustainability menu and look for the link to Solar Panels on Historic Properties under the heading Special Features. In related news, the North Carolina Solar Center also recently published a guide, namely called Installing Solar Panels on Historic Buildings, a survey of the regulatory environment. The report was prepared by the U.S. Department of Energy, North Carolina Solar Center, and National Trust for Historic Preservation. It provides a survey of the regulatory environment. Topics in the report include practical approaches to installing solar technology on historic properties, a glossary of terms and list of state laws and provisions, 
and public policy framework for historic preservation. The public policy framework section addresses the Secretary of the Interior standards for rehabilitation and sustainability, and it also includes state and local access regulation, local building standards, local preservation ordinances and zoning codes, as well as design reviews within historic preservation ordinances. You can find a copy of the report online at the Historic Tax Credit Resource Center at www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you have questions about installing solar panels on historic properties, I'd encourage you to contact a Novigradin company office near you. My partners are experts not only in renewable energy, but historic preservation as well. In renewable energy tax credit news, while renewable energy tax credits were not specifically discussed during last week's presidential debate, a recent survey shows continued strong voter support for solar energy and for government incentives for solar. Likely voters in the 2012 election cycle overwhelmingly support solar energy and would like to see the federal government do more to foster the growing industry. This, according to a national poll that was released on October 2nd. The survey was conducted by independent polling firm Hart Research Associates, and it found that 92%, yes, 92% of likely voters feel the U.S. should develop and use more solar energy. That's right, 92% are supportive of solar energy. The poll also found widespread bipartisan, I want to emphasize bipartisan, support for federal incentives fostering solar energy. The Solar Energy Industries Association reports that 78% of the respondents said the government should provide tax credits and financial incentives to encourage the development and use of solar energy. Some of the details behind the poll, there were 1,206 U.S. voters surveyed and the margin of error plus or minus 2.8%. Turning to the states for a moment, states have continued to advance energy efficiency initiatives regardless as to which political party is in control of state legislatures and governor offices. This according to the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. Last week, this group released its sixth annual State Energy Efficiency Scorecard. The State Energy Efficient Scorecard benchmarks all 50 states and the District of Columbia according to the policies and programs that encourage the efficient use of energy in many sectors of the economy. The group says its report aims to capture the diversity of efforts related to energy efficiency happening at the state level and to encourage friendly competition among the states to craft policies and programs that deliver the benefits of energy efficiency. The scorecard shows that the top 10 energy efficiency states are, in order, 1. Massachusetts. In its second year atop the rankings, I note. 2. California. 3. New York. 4. Oregon. 5. Vermont. 6. Connecticut. 7. Rhode Island. 8. Washington. 9. Maryland. And rounding out the top 10, the state of Minnesota. The group, I note, also rated the three most improved states for energy efficiency. They were Oklahoma, Montana, and South Carolina. And of particular interest to listeners, Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon specifically cited state tax incentives for more energy efficient construction as one of the tools that had allowed Oklahoma to improve its ranking. In new market tax credit news, last week the CDFI fund released its monthly update to its ongoing Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report. 
The report identifies the dollar amount of allocation authority that's been issued to investors, as well as the amount remaining to be issued to investors. In September, approximately 1.1 billion of QEIs were finalized. That's right, 1.1 billion dollars, billion with a B. This is approximately twice the volume of QEIs issued in August, when approximately 573 million of QEIs were finalized. This dramatic increase in activity was expected because of deadlines set forth in allocation agreements as much as three years ago, as well as eligibility requirements for far-round allocatees that applied in the current allocation application round. Now, the amount still available in new market tax allocation authority is approximately $4 billion, that as of October 1st, although much of that is already unofficially committed. If you need help finding an allocation or closing a transaction, I encourage you to contact one of my partners, and that's Stevenson in our Cleveland, Ohio office, Owen Gray in our San Francisco office, or another partner in the Novogratic office near you. At the administrative level, the City of Fund announced last week that it's updated its telephone system. The phone and fax numbers for City of Fund staff, including those working in the New Market Tax Program, have changed. Email addresses for City of Fund and staff have not been affected by this change, however. The new information for the New Market Tax Credit Program is as follows. If you want to reach the help desk, dial 202-653-0421 and select option 3. To send a fax, dial 202-508-0084. Updated information for individual staff members can be found on the CDFI Fund's website under the Who We Are tab. The CDFI Fund said that the old numbers will redirect callers to the appropriate number for a short time. The CDFI Fund encourages users to update their contact information as soon as possible. The system will not redirect users for very long. And in closing, if you're planning to join us at our New Orleans New Market Tax Credit Conference next week, I have a scheduling note. Senator Mary Landrieu will join us on Friday morning. Now, we're very pleased that U.S. Senator Landrieu is taking the time out of her busy schedule to come and speak to our attendees. This is yet another reason for you to join us in New Orleans next week. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novogratik.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits and iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novogratik.com.